Welcome to Security All In. This is Sam Curry. I'm Chief Security Officer for Cyber Reason. And on Security All In, I talk to fellow CISOs and luminaries in the security industry. We talk about risk, and as much as possible, we try to get to what motivates us, at what point we went all in on security, or security went all in on us in some cases. And occasionally, we have a motif to poker and to gaming in general. Hopefully, that resonates with folks. I'm very lucky and pleased today to uh, welcome Don Welch to the podcast. Don, you're the CISO for Penn State, so uh, welcome to Security All In. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here. Now, uh, what I know of of Penn State is mostly at a distance, but from what I understand, it's it's almost a small city. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, I think it is. It may be a, a little bit more complex than that. So we have our our main campus here at University Park, and that's uh, around uh, 40,000 students, but we have 100,000 students. Wow. We have 24 campuses. We have a number of those campuses that are fully residential. And if you think about all the things that a university does besides the teaching, learning, research, it really is a city. So we have our public safety, we have healthcare, uh, we have retail operations, we have transportation operations, we have an airport. You have police, right? I mean, you've got you've got everything. Do you have fire department and and energy production? We do. We have uh, we produce our own energy. We have a nuclear reactor. Yeah, the, I think the only compliance and regulations that I don't have to comply with are Sarbanes Oxley, uh, because we're not a for profit. Don't say that too loudly. Somebody might might amend Sarbanes Oxley, right? So yeah, right. you're not only in one geography, right? You're you're just 24 campuses is a, is a pretty staggering number. How wide apart are they? How far apart are they? So they're distributed throughout Pennsylvania. So most people know how big Pennsylvania is, but it's about six or seven hours across Pennsylvania. We're in the middle. So when uh, I go with the provost to visit campuses, we use the Penn State plane and we can generally hit two campuses in a day. As you can imagine, you spend more time getting up to altitude than you do actually uh, traveling somewhere. It's hard to hit more than one campus uh, a day driving. So it's a pretty involved thing to get around and visit all of our campuses. That's amazing. And for most of my experience has been with, with universities that you have a lot of IP, you have a lot of unmanaged systems, a lot of short-lived people coming and going throughout the seasonality of the year. What is your relationship as a security person to either the IT functions and or the student population? And, and what is the general approach to security about a, a university that's different from others? Well, so I think that the key thing that's different from uh, other types of organizations is universities thrive on innovation and autonomy. If you think of professors as being entrepreneurs. So we have essentially 8,000 entrepreneurs who try to come up with new and innovative ideas, quickly figure out if they will work. Those that work go out and get funding for them, seek that funding. Uh, When they get funded, bring it in, develop that idea. So this idea of autonomy, independence, agility is really important. In some cases, they work on information that uh, is a very sensitive nature. Obviously, federal contracts, government contracts, DOD, a lot of it involves sensitive information in terms of individual healthcare, 
mental health or other kinds of information that really needs to be kept private. Mm -hmm. And of course, foreign nations want that intellectual property and they come after it. It's pretty well documented about how most foreign nations are attacking universities and going for their intellectual property. And then we're almost a $7 billion organization. And so all that money is floating around somewhere, changing hands, and bad guys are constantly trying to uh, divert it to their uh, own uses. So uh, it's, it's a pretty complex organization. So the key for me is to try and keep the university and its community safe as possible, kind of hitting the right risk level while infringing on our ability to be a great institution as little as possible. That makes complete sense. Now, you're, you have a diverse background. I, I won't try to summarize it too quickly, but you spent, I want to say, nearly 25 years in the military. And I originally, in, in thinking about our conversation, was thinking that must have been a big shift, but actually you were involved with education even in the military, weren't you? I was. And people who don't have a lot of experience in the military don't necessarily understand, you know, they, they uh, watch movies or TV. And I was CEO of a company and I showed up and uh, one of the first days someone said, well, leadership in the army is easy. You just tell them what to do and you have a gun. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, no, not quite, because there's a lot more of them and they have guns too. So leadership in the army is really about uh, building trust, getting people to trust you. Because if you think about what you're asking someone to do, you're asking someone to put life and limb on, on the line and authority will only get you so far. Mm. You really have to, they have to trust that, that you're doing the right thing and influence them to do what, uh, what you need them to do. And it's very similar in higher education. Faculty, you know, I'm surrounded by people that are a heck of a lot smarter than me. And I have to convince them that this is the right thing and they have to trust that, you know, I know what I'm doing. So it's, it is similar. And yes, I did spend a lot of time in education. Education is, is my passion. And it's really important for me to do that. But the transition really wasn't uh, as hard for me as a lot of people would think. I think you, you actually taught in the military as well. You, were, you taught at West Point, right? And, I did. And you were, if, do I have this right? You were doing IT around spec ops with Delta Force. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that was one of my assignments. I was uh, uh, in charge of IT for Delta Force. I'd love to know, because the podcast is called Security All In, did you get the security bug before joining the military, or was that something that happened after uh, after being in for a little while? And, and, and how did the two come together like that? Because I don't think people go, gee, it's my passion to be in spec ops and IT at the same time. How did that happen? I started out in the, in the Army doing uh, traditional infantry stuff. The way the army works, it's pretty difficult to stay in field assignments the whole time. So you switch between field and, and support assignments. I was lucky enough to for the army to send me off to get a master's in computer science and go back to West Point to teach back in the 80s. I did that and like most of the faculty at West Point would then go back to the field army and I did my my tour with Delta Force uh, after that. Security was important, but at that time, the internet was just coming of age. We really weren't connected. The, the networks were much more closed, and security wasn't as big a deal. It was much more about 
bringing capability into our uh, soldiers so that they could uh, accomplish their mission. It was really one of the greatest uh, jobs that I had. You worked with a ton of incredibly capable people and you could get basically all the resources you need. You just couldn't fail. <laughs> well, I have two directions I'd like to take this. So I'll try the first one. I think, I hope this will be the shorter one and we can go to the second. The, the, the first question I have is, I know you have a master's in computer science, but I don't know what your bachelor's is in. What was that previous to doing the master's in CS? Yeah, my bachelor's was uh, mechanical engineering. And uh, at West Point at the time, you had to take a very broad uh, array of courses. So even, and it's still the case, even uh, philosophy majors have to have an engineering minor. And with an engineering major, I took law and philosophy. All these courses I didn't want to take as an undergrad, in fact, were my uh, some of the courses that I used the most throughout my career. You strike me as a renaissance man. Is that where the bug hits you by having to take those uh, unassociated other courses? Or was that always uh, lurking in the back somewhere? I would like to think that I was a really conscientious undergrad. I can't really admit to that. I can't either, by the way, so it's totally okay. Yeah, I think my uh, curiosity has grown throughout my life. And I've always liked to learn. And when you're not under the pressure of school, it's a lot more fun to try and figure things out and read. Like, I really love history. I don't like writing history papers, but so it's <laughs> a lot to read read history books rather than be a professional historian. I'll have to talk up to come back and talk history afterwards because the second direction I wanted to ask was, did this happen or in your opinion or what point did it happen when the function you described as internal facing IT and security and supporting, I suppose, kinetic world stuff wasn't the word you used, but the, what the, the primary mission of military operations was, at what point did that shift and did we realize this was a bigger threat and it was its own field of battle in a way? Yeah. When did that happen in your opinion and what was that transition like? So I was fortunate enough to be uh, part of that transition. So in the late 90s, I think, you know, as um, the cyber threats were coming up, the military, I think, was a bit behind. The army was behind. And when I was uh, back at West Point teaching, talking with some uh, friends of mine, and we really realized the importance of cybersecurity both to uh, the Army and to the nation. And we wanted to start an IT program or an IT security program at West Point. We thought that it was important to the Army. You know, of course, a lot of Army officers come through there. And uh, West Point produces uh, most of the people with technical backgrounds that go into the officer corps. So we thought it was the ideal place. So we worked out a plan and we went to the leadership and they said, sure, on your spare time, you can teach additional classes on uh, cybersecurity. And so wow. we, developed, you know, we developed some courses, we put them in place. And one of the cool things that we did at the time, Military Academy was not doing well on the football field and we hadn't won the commander-in-chief's trophy in a while so we said hey this is even better than football let's have a competition amongst the service academies in cybersecurity." so we got the nsa to buy us a trophy that rotates still rotates between the service academies uh, we got them to be a red team and to hold a competition amongst the students they would defend a network and what year was that I think we did the first one in uh, year 2000. 
Wow. So uh, we started this, we call the cyber defense exercise. And of course, it's pretty widespread now to have these uh, competitions amongst all the uh, you know, various colleges and high schools and even some middle schools in some case. But I think the, the really cool thing about that, we realized that early on, I think it's one of the things that really attracted me, is the idea that security is, uh, is, is in, you're trying to outthink your adversary. So much like we were talking before we started the podcast, the idea of chess, yep. but you've got to outthink your opponent. Uh, of course, you have to do that in the, on the battlefield, but it takes place inside this technical world and, you know, in cyberspace. And so you combine a knowledge of technology with trying to outthink someone. And I think it is, you know, probably one of the most fascinating domains that there is. So it's one of the things that really attracted me. My friends and I did a lot to try and uh, promote cybersecurity throughout the Army. And I think some of the cool things are that 20 years later, the ideas that we were promoting have come to fruition. And, you know, I've been back to visit and uh, my friend Dan Ragsdale, he's actually down at Texas A&M right now, but his son, who also became an army officer, commanded the first cyber company that the military had. And we were, of course, calling for this. And of course, we were too old to you know, be involved in, uh, in, as it got <laughs> built up. And it was really great that his son was able to reap the benefits of his work. That's amazing. Uh- you know, it's the, uh, I was talking with uh, Hector Monsegur the other day, and he said, on the, certainly on the cyber criminal side, he wasn't aware of what the kit was that the blue teams were using. And and having the visibility into both sides of, of asymmetric conflict is critical. But now we have, comparing it to chess, chess is uh, eight by eight and predictable and everything is seen. But in a cyber context, anything goes, right? And it's far more complex, far more variables, and you don't necessarily see the board. Right. What do you think are some of the developments that make that the soldier who's in the cyber company, what are the sorts of things that they have today that you think are really game changers or that you are excited about? Are there things coming up on the horizon you think will will equip them for a different kind of cyber war? Well, so one of the things where the Army is uh, changing their approach is the idea that you know all soldiers need to develop the same way. Mm. So the kinetic army is very much a young man's game, a young woman's game. Not only does it require physical endurance and strength, but also you go you know, many days in uh, tough conditions and you have to be able to continue to think without sleep and food and uh, you know, all those uh, different kinds of things that as a result, you move up and out and end up retiring from the military fairly easy. And cybersecurity, the more experience you have, the more you know, people that you talk to and the older you get, you, know, you don't necessarily lose that, that edge. And so they're now starting to bring in cybersecurity people directly from uh, the outside. They just recently established a separate branch with separate promotion criteria. They're not quite there where you can serve longer than 30 years, but they're, they're getting there. So just the way that military is developing and nurturing that talent has taken a turn for the better. And so we're going to be better there. But also 
a lot of the traditional things that the Army does, I think, are going to really help. The idea of developing people as leaders. So in the Army, as in most of the services, from the very beginning, you want people to learn you know, how to be leaders and how to be followers. And if you're not going to be a good leader, well, okay, time to move on somewhere else. Because you never know in a combat situation who's going to be around and who needs to take charge. So you want to have a, a whole team full of leaders. Situational leadership in many ways. And yeah. now's the time to follow and now's the time to, to take the lead. Yeah. Right. And you don't really care about, you know, who has the authority. It's who is in the best position to, you know, to influence things and be successful. And I think a lot of those kinds of those concepts of everyone being a leader, trusting expertise, continuing to develop, to train people, to train people, to train, you know, in the army you have this saying, you, know, you know, train as you fight. So try and set up as realistic of uh, situations as you can. So I was the CEO of uh, Merit Network, IT and network service provider in Michigan. And one of the things that my company developed was a cyber range, the Michigan Cyber Range. And we based it on these principles that we set up this city. And it's a pretty cool little city. Some things are easy to knock over. Some are better defended. But it has a virtual representation. And you've got a dam and lights and so forth. And so you can see if you mess with the traffic lights, the cars crash into each other. <laughs> That's great. Uh, it, it reminds me of the what Spetsnaz used to do when they used to have model cities from the West and they would they would practice living in English or living in a Western language. You also reminded me, I don't know if you've read it, there's a book by John Scalzi called Old Man's War. And in it, I won't spoil it for anybody, it's a good book, but in it you have to be over 75 to sign up, which is kind of cool. And, and it, it feels to me like the culture of the military is changing in this pocket, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the, the emphasis is on a whole person, different way you contact the enemy, different way you develop the self. And authority comes from subject matter expertise in some ways, rather than strictly from hierarchy, which I think is what most people wouldn't expect. Are those fair statements? Yeah, I think so. It is evolving and you see different units. You know, it, it, some kind of units, you tend to concentrate your authority more and your designated leaders. So when I was uh, an infantry company commander, I knew everybody's job better than they did. And my job was to train them and, you know, then get them ready to fight. Uh, when I was in Delta Force, everybody knew their own job better than everybody else. And it was a matter of trying to get everybody aligned and, you know, basically get out of the way of the people who knew what they were doing and give them all the support that they need, which I think is, you know, very similar to, you know, what I do here at Penn State. I certainly don't know everybody's job on, on my team better than, uh, than they do. You know, I've been out of real technical stuff for quite a while. So the key is to make sure they're all moving in the right direction, give them the tools they need, the training, the resources, and uh, try and help them to do their job as best they can. You know, in a way, it's a mark of maturity because in nature and in linguistics as well, you can tell how big a population is or how long it's been around because it's proportional to the speciation. We see this in economics. We see it in cybercrime. When the rules of cybercriminals in a supply chain get that sophisticated, you yeah. know, it's big and it's been around for a while. And now we're seeing the same thing. And there's a whole lot of natural selection happening in cyber, right? So, yeah, this is going to advance in many ways. But I'd love to shift gears for a second and sort of ask you, if we take off the cyber hat for a moment, you mentioned history is a passion of yours. 
And I, I want to dive into that. Before I do, do you have other things that you turn to? I said I, I called you a Renaissance man earlier. I, I mean it very sincerely. Are there ways that you let your mind go sideways and then come back and focus? Is it is it music? Is it reading? Is it family time? Or what are your hobbies or things that make you tick when you're not doing cyber? Yeah, so uh, a lot of things, right? So I, throughout my life, I've been pretty athletic. I played sports in college. I've you know done triathlons, marathons, and I've basically worn out just about all the body parts I have. So <laughs> I can I, relate to that one. I can. I used yeah. to play rugby. It's the same thing here. Yeah. But I do uh, still exercise a lot, and that's really important. I think to being able to think about things is when you're exercising, a lot of these ideas, you know, just kind of come to you. And then the key is to remember it when you, uh, you know, if you write it down, you mentioned music. I'm someone that, you know, I find something I really want to learn about and I get into it. And uh, so before, just before I turned 50, I'd never played a musical instrument before. And, and I decided I wanted to learn how to uh, play the guitar. So I did that and about the same time, one of my sons was doing that. So we took some lessons together and we ended up playing in a band together. That was just That's a, awesome. yeah, it was really, you know, just a, a great experience. And you've, you've kept that up. You've, you've maintained it. You, I, you know, I've got a, a few other folks on the podcast who played instruments. We should probably do a, a jam at some point, but have you kept playing the guitar? Is it still a passion? Not as much, but, you know, I still, I still occasionally, you'll, you know, hear a song go, oh, I gotta, I gotta learn how to play that. But I, I'm not right now. So I, I live at Penn State. My family is still in Ann Arbor. So I'm working an awful lot while I'm here so that I have uh, the time when I'm back home I, on the weekend. I spent a lot of time in Ann Arbor, actually. Uh, I was CTO and CSO for Arbor Networks for two years. So oh, yeah. you mentioned the Michigan Cyber Range. I, I remember interacting with some of the guys that did that afterwards. So it's really cool to know you you did it. By the way, you also made me realize there's a, I shouldn't talk about books so much, but there's a one by Dan Pink I read called When, and mm -hmm. it is uh, subtitled The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, where you figure out your chronotype. It's not a very long book, but the premise is that some people are morning people and some people are sort of evening people and some people are, are really late night, but that there are times when your mind is most creative and they're different from when you should do your taxes. Um, so <laughs> I, I, it sounds like you found not just when, but how to make your mind more creative and more, more spread widely, which is great. Shifting to history, uh, do you have a particular favorite period in history or location? Is it American history, classical history? Anything leap to mind as this is the one that makes you tick? No, what I, um, I try and do is I look for books on areas that I don't know about. So I didn't know much about the period, say, just after the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. And you mean right around the Boer War type time frame and yeah, yeah going and, into World War One that, that time frame? Yeah, and so you know, I, so I picked up a, a, a good biography of uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, the Rough Riders, yeah, yeah, and his development there and up to you know his uh, his time as governor and president and so forth. And of course, uh, in the cases of good history writers, the subject is one thing, but all the supporting getting a feel for what it was like, what people thought, how uh, they were reacting things, what the environment was, I find, I find really fascinating. And uh, I, I tend not to get as excited about the times that we're going through right now, because I think back to all the cycles 
as a people or as a nation that we've gone through. And it's like, yeah, you know, we, we've had our ups and downs, but we've always, you know, pulled out and headed in the right direction. So I tend to be a little calmer about that. I also, I like reading you know, history of science and trying to understand science mm. a lot too. I think I've finally gotten my arms around particle physics, but that's taken <laughs> Oh, dear. We're in trouble. I, my first degree was in physics, so I, it's a near and dear subject to my heart, but I, I also like history. Uh, I, I share with you the, it's, I think we're, I think we are addicted as humans to stories. Uh, you see it in agile development. You see it in mm-hmm. marketing. You see it in um, why are, you know, TED Talks and podcasts so interesting, right? And it's at the heart of what I try to reach in some ways. But what I don't like is when we get this minimalist view, the past, these people weren't like us. You know, the pictures look different somehow they were more primitive when really the human experience is, is the same at almost any perspective you look at it at, right? And you get the something novel when you read about the turn of that of 19th to 20th century, and then you, you try to find how it applies to you now. I can completely relate to that. You reading anything good at the moment? So right now, let's see, I just finished um, Richard Rhodes' Energy of Human History. Oh. If you haven't read I Richard Rhodes, he writes some really interesting stuff, but he does a great job with science. His history of the atomic bomb and history of the hydrogen bomb, uh, I loved. Oh, yeah, fat man and, and little boy and skinny man. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, not only all the people involved, but the actual engineering and science behind it was is really great. I also read recently Adam Rutherford, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived. It's a lot about genetics, which, of course, is changing pretty quickly. You know, really interesting stuff. If you're of European descent, probably only have to go back about 600 years and we all have a common ancestor. So if you want to claim you're descended from royalty, it's valid. Everybody can. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, I just found out that my wife's grandfather was one of the engineers who worked on the bomb casings in the Manhattan Project, which was, oh. I found that out like a week ago. And now I'm, I've asked her uncle, who's sort of done the family archival stuff. I was fascinated by it. And and by the way, there's a book, uh, it's a bit dated now, but they've been doing genomics on like, it's called Before the Dawn, especially some speciation that's happened or a specialization that's happened in human populations since essentially things like the domestication of dogs and cats and stuff, which is fascinating. But mm-hmm. so I'm going to, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and say, uh, you know, maybe just a few final questions for you. The first one is if given what you've seen, and I know you, you were in the military and then you in the private sector as well, and now you're back in effectively this, forgive the expression, but the cyber mayor of a small town that yeah. spreads across 24 sites in Pennsylvania. What advice would you have to the students that are coming in sometime this fall or to people who are thinking, is cyber for me? Or maybe they're thinking of a career change. Do you, do you have any advice for them for the next 10 years? Yeah. So I think um, obviously, you know, learning about and experience of the, um, all the technical and other issues around cybersecurity is important. But I think what's equally important is broad experience because cybersecurity does not operate in a vacuum. So I've been fortunate that I've either done or led all different, every different aspect of IT in an, in an organization. So when I'm working with IT organizations, I, you know, I know what their pain points are and I can talk the talk and address them. And of course, being in a university, having been a professor, you know, having had that experience really gives me an advantage to be able to say, yes, I understand 
you know, what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it. And here's how I'm going to try and keep you safe. So just staying in the security field, I think, really limits you in your ability to be effective. So get experience and then also be curious about things, because as we talked about, cybersecurity is adversarial and it's dynamic and it's always changing. And so getting ideas outside of the current thinking are important to be able to understand these changes and adapt to them quickly. I love that. And of course, we touched a little bit on gaming. We talked a bit about chess. Um, I know you have done the cyber range and trying to get as realistic emulation as possible. You mentioned risk, but uh, I always ask uh, those on, on the podcast here. Uh, we also do a, a little bit of a poker analogy. Would you be up for a CISO game of poker at some point where we talk risk and bluff each other and uh, we simulate, of course, uh, winning and losing money? Would you be up for that sometime? I would, but I, um, my goal in poker and other gambling is to lose money as slowly as possible, especially if there's free drinks involved. But I think that can be arranged. I think I think I think something could be done there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it was expense for entertainment, right? So I love the uh, slow loss. I think the first derivative as small as you can, but I would love to have you. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Well, Don, thank you for joining me. I uh, really appreciate it, and I look forward to talking to you again in future. And thanks for being on Security All In. Well, thanks for having me on, Sam. I really appreciate it.